Welcome to this podcast from St. Michael and All Angels Episcopal Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope you consider hitting like or subscribe. We hope you will share this audio with your friends and neighbors. Help others know about our inclusive, theologically progressive community of faith. If you'd like to support our ministries, you can make a gift at stmichaelsabq.org. In the name of our loving, liberating, and life-giving God. Amen. Last week, at the Diocesan Convention Eucharist, the bishop talked about how many people he encounters who have not been taught that God is loving, that God is liberating, that God is life-giving. Instead, the message they have received, and the one Bishop Hun believes continues to be preached in many if not most pulpits, in many, if not most churches across the country, is a message that God is judgy, cliquish, and violent. This morning I think, well, that's because of passages like this. (laughs) Or, perhaps more accurately, that is because of how we tend to read passages like this. So I am grateful that our collect this morning is Thomas Cranmer's 1549 collect on Holy Scripture, a prayer that addresses how we are called to engage the scriptures and to what end. Blessed Lord, who caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, Grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Hear, read, mark, learn, inwardly, digest. Clearly, this is no cursory glance. No, Cranmer employs us to dive in, to interact, to ruminate, to pull apart so that we might ultimately absorb it, take it into our very being. The experience Cranmer envisions is multi-sensory. There's nothing casual or frivolous about it. That's because for Cranmer, the whole point of engaging with scripture is that we might embrace hope. We might hold fast to hope, the blessed hope of everlasting life. This collect is actually an Advent collect. For more than 400 years, it was read on the second Sunday of Advent. It has only been since 1979 that we hear it not at the beginning of our liturgical year, but at its end. And perhaps that is fitting, because we've already made a turn toward Advent. Perhaps you've noticed the shift in tone in our scripture these past few weeks. We've made a turn toward watchful wakefulness 
in anticipation of God's coming reign on earth, which we will celebrate next week as the reign of Christ. We are then on the cusp of Advent, and that is the context in which our gospel today might best be understood using the approach to scripture called for in Cranmer's Collect. These days, our, observant of, our observance of Advent is primarily backward-looking. Our focus is on the Incarnation. We remember God coming to live among us, taking on flesh as a baby born in poverty to a young, unmarried woman in occupied territory. But Advent is also... In fact, I would argue Advent is primarily about the second coming of Christ. Now, that notion makes many of us very uncomfortable, even though it is something the church professes and something we affirm in the creeds. Whether you actually believe that Christ will come again or think it's just a churchy metaphor, Advent is meant to remind us that the church always lives its life in the now and not yet. This time in between the inauguration of God's reign and its consummation. And our parable today is part of a very long discourse in Matthew about the second coming, about the end times. Now I want to pause here and ask you to forget anything you've heard about the rapture, any image from the Left Behind series, anything about the end of the world. Matthew is not talking about the literal destruction of the planet or universe. Matthew is talking about the ultimate victory of God over the force of evil brought on by God's initiative. Matthew is talking about the radical transformation of this world through the reordering of power and relationships. Yet we, the church for hundreds of years, often read the parable of the talents as a lesson in stewardship. God has given us gifts and abilities, talents, you might say, which, of course, in Greek is simply a giant unit of money, but our English word comes from this parable. So God has given us gifts and abilities that we must not squander or hide. What this parable does, we say, is encourage us to use our talents boldly to seek a greater yield, not for ourselves so much as for the benefit of others or to build up the kingdom. In order to interpret the parable this way, though, we have to assume the rich man, the landowner, represents God. We have to believe that the cruel, hard man who reaps where he did not sow and gathers where he did not scatter seed is a stand-in for God. More than that, 
to read the parable this way, we have to accept that in God's economy, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, and God helps those who help themselves. I hope it's clear by now that we can't read the parable that way. We can only read the parable that way if we pluck it out of its original context without reference to the biblical witness at large or even to the rest of Matthew's gospel. Reading the parable of the talents this way as a stewardship morality story actually reinscribes the power dynamics at play in the Roman imperial world, sanctifying the exploitation of the poor. Reading the parable this way reflects the cultural values of our time, but is incompatible with Matthew's Jesus who, as a baby, had to flee to another country with his family in order to avoid being killed by the state who said, you cannot serve God and wealth. Matthew's Jesus, who told the rich young man to sell all his possessions and give the money to the poor, who told the disciples, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So I think we have to read it differently. And it makes more sense to me to read the parable of the talents as the hinge between the parable of the bridesmaids and the sheep and the goats. Last week and next week. So immediately before the parable of the bridesmaids that we heard last week, Jesus tells a parable contrasting a faithful slave and a wicked slave. The wicked slave is wicked because he abuses his fellows. When the master returns at an unexpected hour, the one who beat his fellow slaves is cast out. Then Jesus tells the parable of the wise and foolish bridesmaids who all fall asleep waiting for the bridegroom. When he arrives, the ones locked out are the ones unprepared. And next comes the parable of the talents. And rather than an example of idleness or misbehavior in the absence of the master, what if this parable leads us into the judgment of nations? What if it is not the slaves who are being held to account, but the master? You know neither the day nor the hour. For it is as if a man who reaps where he does not sow and gathers where he does not scatter made himself rich through the exploitation of others. He will say to me, When, Lord, did I see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And the Son of Man will answer, Truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. 
In other words, I find myself wondering whether the master will be judged as a sheep or a goat. Reading this parable as a lesson in stewardship or as a prescription about how to be faithful with what God has given us is not born out of a faithful engagement with Holy Scripture. As uncomfortable as it might be, the parable of the talents is part and parcel of Matthew's discourse on the second coming. But we need not be afraid. If we understand the second coming, the consummation of God's reign on earth, not as the destruction of the world, but as God's ultimate victory over the forces of evil, a victory brought about by God's initiative rather than our own, we can find hope in the day of judgment. There is hope to be found here because, as Fleming Rutledge insists, biblical judgment can only be understood in the context of God's righteousness. Not just in God being righteous, a noun, but in God's righteousness, a verb, in God's making right all that has been wrong. In that sense, there is hope in the ultimate making right of God in that promised day of judgment when God comes in God's righteousness to reclaim creation for God's self once and for all. Judgment, then, is not something to be feared for those who trust in the promise of God to redeem humanity and the cosmos, despite all appearances to the contrary. Nearly 500 years ago, Thomas Cranmer reminded us that all scripture was written for our learning and prayed that we might engage them in such a way that they become part of who we are so that we might embrace hope. It is this that guards against a judgy, cliquish, violent God. Because our image of God is distorted when we read scripture in isolation. If we are to proclaim a God that is loving, liberating, and life-giving, we need to look at the whole arc of scripture. Because the humans who penned it and those who read it are the ones who are judgy, cliquish, and violent. That's not who God is, that's who we are. It is only when we embrace the whole arc of scripture that we can hold fast to the hope, in the words of St. Paul, that God has destined us not for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through Jesus Christ. And thanks be to God for that. <laughs>